I saw my brother out in the uh, waiting area, and that was the first time my Korean grandmother came to the United States, and she had to experience something like that. And they were just waiting outside. They were trying to be able to ask me. The police department was asking me a whole bunch of questions about what had transpired, which I had no clue. Welcome to Natural Tendencies. I'm your host, Rick Braden. Join us as we hear the real issues affecting real people that truly and deeply impact their work performance. Anxiety, depression, conflict, marital problems, trauma, grief, and loss. Right here, right now, right on! We are back, and in this podcast, I am talking to a dear friend and colleague, Chu Shin. And I've known Chu now for more than a decade. And part of the inspiration for this podcast is that doing organiza- in doing organizational development work with companies, I realized that so much training, while I, obviously we believe in training, it's what we do, so much of the real transformational work comes from the deeper problems that affect us at work that everybody's going to face. At some point, if we're fortunate enough to live long enough, we will have to face aging or dying parents. We will experience some sort of a relationship fallout, whether it be a separation, a divorce. All of us who are in committed relationships, when we have problems in those relationships, which are inevitable, it's very difficult to have a fight that's painful with your spouse, for example, and then go to work the next day and expect to have top performance. We know that a big percentage of the population struggles with anxiety, struggles with depression, struggles with things that have happened in their past that can be anywhere from just slightly throwing you off your game to completely debilitating. We know statistically that a third of the women in the United States have been sexually abused. And if you're abused, you are going to likely have certain symptoms. And those symptoms can range from unresolved anger, grief, anxiety, all of the other things I just touched on. And so if you're talking about a third of the women in the United States being sexually abused as children, then that really means that every single family and every single company and every single department within that company is touched by really heavy duty issues. And Chu Shin works with Essentials and he does the type of work I'm talking about, which is going into companies, working with the people within that company at all different levels when life happens to them. 
and life surely happens to them. But today I'm going to sort of reverse the lens and we're going to talk to Chu about Chu. And the coach is going to be coached. And I'm pretty excited about this session, which is our third ever. So, Chu, we met at Full Sail University, and I was part of the screening committee uh-huh. yeah. to see if you were going to get hired. And so, you took our behavioral assessment, which I was pretty excited. One of our partners, Bob Carilli, just let me know that as of August of 2018, we've administered our behavioral assessments to over 550,000 people. So when you completed our assessment, we may have administered the assessment a couple thousand times, maybe. And I just remember you being so your data being so intense and (laughs) speaking greatly to passion. And I think it would be a good idea to just sort of start there. Like, what was your experience taking this assessment and what were the next couple months coming up to it? I want to talk about that and the learnings from that. And then I also want to talk about you being definitely a trauma victim who transitioned to a trauma survivor who now having processed so much for so many years about those early traumas really lives a pretty full productive life and each year I see constraints and things that held you back falling off and allowing you to really go further and to achieve more of what you want. So why don't we just start there with that first assessment and what that was like and what your experience was like. So when I first took the survey, you know, when you, when you enter and access it, sign up for it, you have to select the words that best describe how you behave most of the time. So I'm checking those words, and next thing you know, I'm like, is this it? And I had no idea, no frame of reference why I'm taking this survey. But what was great is that when I had an opportunity to meet you, didn't know you from at, at all. And I remember you sitting right across from me with this results. And I remember like saying to myself, what the hell is this? Why is this line, why am I all over the place? And I start to kind of have some inner doubts. It's like... I think you said you were a hot mess. Yeah, I was like, I look like a hot mess based on these results. And so, as a result, like, I was able to hear you out. You were able to describe specific things about me, just about how confident I was, how intense I was. Um... And you shared all these different qualities. And in my mind, I was going, finally, someone who gets me, someone who understands me, where in the world have you been in my life? And so at that time, I was like, how in the world is this person, does this person get to know about me 
and I've never met this guy. And so I was just blown away from it. And from that point on, I was like, I got to know what he knows. Because if he's able to figure this out, and he's never met me at all, then imagine if I can be able to understand that, how that would just help me excel in life and just grow in my life. And for me, all you know, growing up, I've always wanted to be successful, you know, just like everybody else. But I, I have this strong and high ambition for you know, wanting to be able to make it ahead, you know, focused a lot on extrinsic things like title, status, materialistic things, all the things that I found or I thought at that time was success. So I remember from that conversation, I was just very curious, how in the world did this guy, Rick, know these things about me? And so I was just on a mission to be able to try to discover, how did you do that? And so that's how it started. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that about me. One of my teachers, John Milton, who founded The Way of Nature, he said something interesting to me recently. He said, when somebody gives you really high praise and a high compliment, allow it to sink in and enjoy it thoroughly for about two seconds and then let it go. <laughs> because when, when people praise you and you're out in the public, just as many people are going to be doing the opposite. So you sort of get a thick skin around that, but I do appreciate it, Chew. And you had and still have a tenacity, so you were really akin to a stalker. Yeah, 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 that's what I said. That's what I tell people, like, you know, every time I, I do uh, or I demonstrate or provide their results, you know, when they take this assessment. You tell them that the charges were dropped. I say, hey, <laughs> like, I literally stalked Rick. You and did. I was lucky enough and fortunate enough where I did not have a restraining order. Because <laughs> every single month when I knew that he was in town or I caught wind that you were in Orlando, I literally tried to find you. <laughs> Yeah, you did, and, and that tenacity is part of, it's one of the, the strengths that we saw in the assessment that your endurance score, the need to finish what you start, is really high. And you just really are unwilling to stop or be denied in some ways when you really want something. Correct. Yeah. That's absolutely true. So do you remember the growth areas we talked about, part of what the assessment revealed was all sorts of strengths that you had, and there were also growth areas, areas of opportunity, lots of different ways to phrase that. They used to just say flat out weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One particular story, that you, one particular moment that you shared was I remember it was the high self-confidence. I had like a 99% high self-confidence and in my first score. And next thing you know, you were like, Chu, I want you to understand something. Somebody with this is someone that's very, very self-assured. They believe in themselves and that's great. But one of the things about this or one of your weaknesses is that you're a crappy listener. Your listening skills 
suck. Wow, I, I, I hope I'm a little smoother. Well, probably not. Not, not in that moment. <laughs> and you were like, matter of fact, I want to be able to give you an understanding. You, you had shared that out of all of the leaders that are at Full Sail, you have the highest self-confidence score out of the entire leadership team. And I was like, oh yeah, that's great, awesome. And you're like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me repeat that again, because again, this is something that's very, very important. You have the highest self-confidence score out of the entire leadership team at Full Sail. The person that's the least experienced, having the highest confidence in the entire leadership organization at Full Sail. And it took a while for me to be able to actually like allow that to marinate and sink in, but like, wait a second, how can I be the most confident when I have the least amount of experience? You know, that's almost like ignorant bliss in a way, but it also shows that like, hey, there's probably more to the situation or more to circumstances that you can learn. And listening should be, it should be one of the biggest things that I should really look at. Yeah, so that drive combined with the, that self-confidence, I don't know where I've heard this phrase, but you would really somewhat stop being a human being and you started becoming a human doing. Yep. And I thought, what is at the root of this incredible drive? What, what is Chu trying to prove? And to whom is he trying to prove it? Sure. How would you answer that question now? It's completely different, I would say, than at that time, which was, what, 2007? So, I mean, we're looking at now 11 years. Um, now, I mean, for me, I feel like I had to go through the experience to be able to really truly understand. And as a result, now I can be able to pay that forward. What was the driver? What it were was, you trying to prove and to whom? Well, it was, I, I thought it was the, f the fear of failure. But I remember our, one of our other sessions, or countless sessions, uh, one of the biggest drivers were the fear of abandonment. And that was attributed because of, you know, my upbringing, the things that, was ra that, I, you know, that I was raised and with my parents passing away. Yeah, I think it's important to tell that story because the trauma you experienced when you first shared that story really just rocked my world. I just didn't even know how to respond or to react at all to the story. So why don't you, you've shared it before, but I think people listening will benefit from this story? Um, so the narr narrative is that I was born in South Korea and when I was eight years old I was adopted by my father who was actually uh, you know was in the military in the Air Force and so that's how I ended up 
not only having my citizenship, but also being able to be and live in the United States. Um, I was told by my mother, my biological mother, that the reason why I was born was because she was raped by my biological father. And at that time, when I was in Korea, I was raised up and I was raised by my grandparents. And so, uh, from my mom's side. And then my mom came into my life at eight years old with my dad, uh, or my stepfather at that time, who she married, um, who's American, uh, Caucasian and, and Cherokee Indian mix. And I was adopted and I was able to come to the United States. Um, flew down to Portland, Oregon from South Korea and drove to Wyoming, which is where they were stationed at in Cheyenne. And so for the first month, I thought we kind of lived in tents and in, in what we had at the time was a Ford Bronco because we went, we went, I didn't know this at the time, but we had to drive from Portland, Oregon over to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and that takes a couple of days to be able to do, but instead we took our time and we spent an entire month to be able to camp, and that's how I thought at eight years old, that's how they lived, which I, thought, which, which I found to be very, very strange. But we ended up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, living, uh, living in a house, in a normal house, in a military base, and so forth. Um, so I was raised in a military family. I, you can consider myself as being uh, a military brat. And we've lived in different locations, in several places in Europe, and came back to the United States. But by the time I was 18 years old, um, you know, my parents were having, uh, having disputes internally at the house. And one day, my mom decided to be able to shot, uh, shoot my dad, and she shot herself. And your dad was killed in that incident? That is correct. And your mom was in basically a vegetative state, I believe, and then was placed in a facility and she subsequently died? Correct. So. And you were 16? Uh, no, I was 18. Oh, you were 18. Yeah, just as, uh, like right after I graduated from, from high school. And I remember I, got, I was receiving a call from my program director. And at that time, I was working at a radio station uh, at a hip-hop and R&B format. And I got a call from my program director said, hey, the Bossier City uh, Police Department is looking for you. You might want to call them. And at that time, I was like, why would they be calling me? And come to find out, you know, something happened with my parents. As a result, my mom shot my dad, and she shot herself. And um, pretty much, I saw my brother out in the uh, waiting area, and that was the first time my Korean grandmother came to the United States, and she had to experience something like that. And they were just waiting outside. They were trying to be able to ask me. The police department was asking me a whole bunch of questions about what had transpired, which I had no clue. And um, just that whole incident, like. You know, I've heard you share that story privately and publicly now maybe a handful of times. And every time you do, it's intense to say the least. So 
So you start life by being told by your mom that you're unwanted and the child of a rape. That, what was, what would that, how would that make you feel about yourself as a person? Uh, you know, it's just always difficult to hear that, like, that's the reason for my existence. To just know that, right, first and foremost. What do you mean by difficult to hear? I mean, that's, normally you, you see, like, cartoons of, like, a baby is born, it was carried with a stork to a loving couple, right, a loving parent. And not to say that my, 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 my parents didn't love me, they didn't take care of me. They took care of me. I'm very fortunate for that. But, like, to be able to know some of the truths about, like, how you existed, you know, it's kind of messed up in a way. It's not coherent or consistent to the way that you know how, how a newborn or a new baby is developed, right? And it's, and it's happened due to someone raping my mom in this scenario. Right, so that's that's one is like it's it's horrible to 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 hear that. Um, but then secondly, it's like okay, like she was also not really readily accepted by her parents, which is my grandparents, you know. And I see some of that dysfunction or alienation, and so I see some of those those patterns now being able to reflect on this quite a bit. Yeah. So, we've talked before about a child being egocentric, just meaning that they think ha things happen because of them, or they're sort of the center of the, the world, and the parents are like these divine caretakers. And in a healthy development like you described there's just this delivery and it's exciting and everybody rallies around it's celebratory and clearly the tone would have been much different than that correct i would i would wonder that the root of some of this drive and ambition was to really prove something about your own value and your own worth Am I valuable? Do I matter? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I mean, back then, I mean, I was, as a kid, I was really into competition. I want, you know, I, I remember in Korea, like, winning first place, because I want, I like, I would get really pissed off if I lost. Meaning that if you it was in first place, it was, it was, you're, you lost. You sort of had to win, didn't you? Correct. So we all form identities, way we, ways we see ourselves. And yours went right, and a lot of executives are like this, went right to what psychologists often called a performance-based identity. Just really meaning that I'm okay as long as I'm succeeding, and as long as I'm climbing, as long as I'm winning whether it be a deal or a promotion, climbing the corporate ladder, etc. 
And very few people ever make the connection that they are trying to prove to themselves that they're okay. And I'm not sure that ever completely goes away. No, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, I still have those instances and thoughts all the time. So, so many times we have this idea of therapy and seeking help to get over something. Like, I'm past that. I have <laughs> grieved. I have healed my shame, my grief, whatever. And now after doing this work, I believe 2018 marks my 30th year. I'm really beginning to question that whole idea of getting over or past something. And what I mean about that is some of these issues run so deep, they like, they get into us at a cellular level. And with all of the education, all of the books, all the therapy in the world, there's still stuff trapped in our bodies, in our narrow pathways of the brain that will still have those messages, like those tapes exist, you're not good enough, you need to be more, what's wrong with you? And so I'm starting to think about dealing with trauma partially about integrating integrating the experience to where the emotions that might be trapped in the body, the beliefs that are self-defeating in the mind, where it's really just about opening those channels, starting to move towards trust more, really being able to process and just integrate the experience as part of your identity, but not the whole story, not the whole story. And recently, you've been working with another of our clients who committed suicide about yeah. two weeks ago. And I shared with you the story of, that I'd heard about the Dalai Lama and it has really challenged my thinking. And I, I think I'll share that story. So the Dalai Lama was being interviewed and the interviewer asked if he had any regrets, anything that he had said or done that he really regretted that really went wrong. And he told the story of a monk who wanted to join another monastery a monastery that was much more physically oriented. The one that's probably the most famous is the Shaolin Monastery from which came Kung Fu. And the Dalai Lama advised this monk because of his age and health issues that he didn't think that that would be the best choice for him. The monk returned to his monastery and committed suicide. in the hope that he would be reincarnated and be able to join one of these more youthful physical monasteries. And 
clearly that would jolt anybody to their core, I would think. The interviewer then asked the Dalai Lama if how he ever got over that. How did you get over it? And she said that he looked really confused at the question. And he took a long time before he responded. And when he responded, he responded with a question. First he said, I think, well, why would I ever get over that? And of course I wouldn't get over that. And that really struck me that sometimes we can process through the pain of trauma and still moments will arise to where we'll realize hey I'm still acting out of that need to prove myself or I'm still acting from a base of shame but the difference is there's a self-awareness that you can sort of recognizing or sort of recognize that you're operating from that place that's not completely whole that still has some residual impact now again that doesn't in any way have to define you and it doesn't have to hold you back it becomes part of your unique story and part of your unique giftings I think is your capacity for compassion and I think you're a living example that people in spite of what most would consider horrific circumstances can thrive and do pretty well. And I'm wondering now, how do those events still, if they do or if you're aware that they do, hold you back? And what are the behaviors that manifest when you're operating out of that place? So, you know, I was in Denver last week. And when I see situations like that where someone has committed suicide or there's trauma like similarly to the things that I've experienced, I have a tendency to be able to lean into it. (laughs) I don't shy away from it. Uh, You know, most people will get uncomfortable and awkward by it. I'm like... I know exactly what this looks like or what this feels like, what this experience is like to some capacity. And so I, I'm just naturally compassionate to those individuals to, to know like, hey, they're not alone. And in doing that, sometimes I overextend myself. Sometimes I'll I'll go into it and try to be able to help out more and more and more and do more things to be able to help them with with their situation. And as a result, it it burns me out in the process. And then when it burns me out, you know, I I need solace. I need, sometimes it triggers certain things in me 
that I have to work through, you know, which are uh, some of the uh, the sadness of losing that loved person, the loved one, the suffering from everyone else around that person that they cared about, um, and it triggers certain things that 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 I think about in terms of my family, and part of that is like okay, I have to. I, I process it internally, but then I have to say, okay, like, that's no longer the way that I operate all the time. And so it just takes time for me to be able to actually, like, get back into, like, the groove of things again. And so I'll, I'll, I, I'm at home, and I'm in home, I'm at home for two days straight without really seeing anybody. So there, there are situations like that that I have to kind of, like, recover from, right? I know that I'm doing certain things. Um, but I still have the need to like try to help out more and more and more, right? Just to make sure that they're okay, right? And that. I wonder if you're really trying to help out more and more so that you can be okay sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Well, it was a question. I don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of interpretations for behavior, and everybody in different schools of therapy has different ideas about that. But when I think about just this need to do more, to be more, even to help more, to give more, to contribute more, sometimes I think that's is like an overcompensation. Yeah, but then that's something that I would say that is constantly on my mind and there are things that I have that I'm trying to practice well are practicing because I, I have noticed that in, in several of our conversations through our sessions that we had which is me always having the need to actually do something about it and part of that is validation others is you know the restlessness that I have around certain things mm -hmm. and the need to be in control over that. You know, that's so interesting because those, there's three big themes that we're going to develop. So there's overcompensation. Really two we'll focus on. This idea of overcompensation and restlessness. Restlessness, when people really have trouble not doing where they have to turn on the TV, they have to phone a friend, they have to grab something to eat, they have to work harder, they have to hit another goal. Often at the root of that is some kind of trauma and some sort of pocket of unresolved emotion that by being distracted in all of the different ways we distract ourselves, work is one of the big ones, we don't really have to sit or stay with those very difficult emotions like loneliness, like profound loss, that sense that I really am alone in this world. And I have to think that those kind of feelings would have to be imprinted, and I don't know if it's true, so you, but I would think that those would be pretty heavily imprinted 
through the types of traumas that you've endured? I would say yes. I mean, if it was like 10 years ago, hell yeah. I mean, that's without a doubt something that I was battling all the time. I mean, I was always on the go. Um, but now, I, I will honestly say is that like, man, I, I've been practicing meditation quite a bit, and that's helped out quite a bit. I've, like a lot of the things that you've taught me, I have really incorporated those things. The pushing hands, <laughs> the, the breathing, you know, taking time for yourself, you know, and looking at, you know, what is, how can you be well, right? Um, and I have moments where I'm like, we got to do something that there's, there's a sense of like impatient or, or like, hey, like sense of urgency, like we need to do this, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but at the same time, I also... And I'll feel that pressure sometimes. <laughs> I don't doubt that. Um, just like we've had conversation over at the Rio Grande in New Mexico and just, you know, having those type of conversations. But, like, I also, you know, see with nature and just how things grow and the things that you've... The lessons that I've learned from you and I've, and I've applied them. And it's been very, very helpful. It's been very balancing or... Grounding is the better term instead of balance. Yeah. It's been very grounding for me, and that's been helpful a lot. So this idea of overcompensating, there's a root to it in some insecurity. And then when you combine that with like a 100% self-confidence score, yeah, it's not real. And the overcompensation can result in a person, you, feeling a need to appear more knowledgeable than maybe you are. Sure. Then, and, and it can extend into exaggeration or things that will ultimately erode your credibility. And I think you being mindful of that particularly with conservative people, people who, who really place a high value on accuracy, which is your more highly self-controlled, more people with more of a need for order and structure, etc. I think that's an area that you will want to pay careful attention to. Because I think you do that, but I think it comes from a wounded place. And I'm wondering, because this is the first time I've talked about this specifically with you, I'm wondering how what, I'm, what you're hearing, you started with listening and being a good listener is a goal of yours. So what are you hearing from what I just said? What you have said was that when you take, or when you're working with somebody that is, more organized, um, more specific, to be able to not embellish, not try to over-exaggerate certain things, or that point of that topic of discussion, and um, be able to communicate what it is and yeah. be specific. But it begins with 
that's that's pretty close but it begins with a self-awareness like I'm feeling this need to like I need to be better or I need to be more or I need to impress or I need the acceptance of it's going to begin with this felt thing and it'll be like a tightening probably yeah it's an urge for me an urge yeah an urge and what's that urge like how do you how do you recognize it like what these things usually start in the body yeah I just uh, I mean like I want to move like I want to get up you know I want to get out like I want to express myself you know like physically like with my hands you know I want to like say something about it because I just yeah that's it's an urge literally I the best way I can describe it is like sometimes I just got to sit on my my hands to be able to let me know like hey like instead of listening to respond just just listen to acknowledge it and that's something that I have to learn and put into practice sure absolutely and that's one of those things that runs pretty deep that was a most important like it was one of the most difficult things for me I would say and I think it will probably continue to be for a while something that you will want to have a heightened awareness around because right now in your development I feel like you're well suited for working with middle level management and you certainly have the potential to work more with senior management but as you go up that the ranks in an organization those are the kind of things that will lose credibility and then those people won't trust you as much and most of the time they'll never say anything about it and being a person myself who at times deals with feelings of inadequacy, of worthlessness, of not being valued, even after diligently being aware of this, counseled on it, confronted on it, it was so ingrained in my being and the way my family of origin operates that my antenna towards that needs to be on high alert as much as possible. And then when you're a natural storyteller and you want to get people feeling good or revved up or whatever is when it really can spring up. And that just is actually completely unnecessary because I know what you bring to the table and I look forward to the day that deep in your heart, you know it. And then you will be able to even relax more. Hmm. So, when you talk about this journey and techniques that you've learned, is there any one or two things that are very practical that you do to 
really help yourself, to either help take care of yourself or to deal with painful emotions? Is there anything specifically that has worked for you that has become sort of a foundational piece of your practice? Yeah, so one of the things that I I find is like I'll play basketball. And that's a way for me to be able to really clear my thoughts and interrupt the pattern of my inner critic. That's so interesting because basketball puts you into your body. Mm -hmm. And so often our minds and our bodies are separated. And I really can't overemphasize the value of physical activity and then I would probably add nutrition as probably the two most overlooked variables that dramatically contribute to mental health. And if I had to nail down one of them, I would probably say nutrition. And with the executives I work with, most of them do not nearly value that component enough for energy, for clarity, for relaxation, etc. And not only that, but just good old-fashioned discipline. Sure. But you know I like to feast when it comes to food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've attended some Korean barbecues with you, and I feel like we probably indulge to the level of two or three families. That has been, that is very true. We do that. So this nutritional component is one that we'll be talking about in the future podcasts, and I'll probably be talking about with you. Great. <laughs> I think this is a reasonable point to wrap this up. Yeah. And dude, I greatly appreciate you as a person and being a part of this, and I can't wait to see you continue to grow and flourish. Thanks, Rick. All right. At Behavioral Essentials, we intend to help a lot of people, and today we hope we helped you. So join us for our next session, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and visit our website at behavioralessentials.com. Thanks for listening.